Hello and welcome to the arbitration station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Joel Dahlqvist. And I'm Brian Kotick. And today we are your two co-hosts for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world, and 100% season finale and uh, sadness that Sadia cannot be with us. I know. This is a shout out to our third co-host who couldn't be with us. It's sad that we can't finish off her first season with the finale episode but such is the unprecedented times of the pandemic <laughs> yes yes exactly we should start with a big mea culpa also we are what like three four weeks late with this episode following our regular scheduling yes and it's like when people call you during the pandemic and they're like how are you not picking up my phone call you have nothing else to do um you can maybe throw that shade to us saying why can't you record you have nothing else to do but Life gets in the way sometimes. Yeah, it's been a crazy month, and I'm sure there are a lot of listeners out there who share. We need to be nice to ourselves and to each other and say that it's a, these are special times. And maybe, hopefully, season five, episode one, later this fall or whenever we, we go ahead with this, maybe the world is back and we can sit down and actually talk about this with a little bit of benefit of a distance right now it just <laughs> yeah. feels like everything is happening all at once while you're also doing nothing sometimes <laughs> it's very true where in the world have you, are you joel speaking of yeah speaking of i managed to get back to my native sweden where in the world are you i am in london i have not moved um how is sweden doing during lockdown the oh, anomaly of the let's world let's not do this <laughs> so tired of having to defend the so-called Swedish approach. But I will say that it is confusingly normal to be here. Uh, it's it's in a nice way, especially compared to both New York and London, which, of course, were the two yeah. places I, I came from immediately before. I um, have some a... light social distancing, but otherwise, you know, you can, bars are open and uh, people, at least the people who are like younger than 65, behave as if nothing has happened. I have a friend who just went to Sweden from London as well. And I said, are you, which policies are you going to abide by? Uh, you know, it, it's kind of a weird question because it's like, are you going to stay with your London restrictions since that's what the government has been telling you? Or are you going to change the Swedish restrictions, in which case you didn't actually believe the London restrictions? <laughs> um, but they said that they're going to do whatever they want. So yeah, well, it's basically that that is the Swedish approach, essentially, like this is what the authorities think would be a common sense thing to do. But we trust you mm -hmm. to use your own common sense. You can follow our guidelines if you like to, but we trust you, <laughs> which is very confusing because in New York and London, it's been just like these are the rules. And now it's kind of hard when you're interacting with other people, like meeting friends, family members, basically every person in Sweden seems to have a very different approach to people who are more strict than the situation was in New York. And other people are just like, ah, no problem. Just as long as we're outside or don't spend too much time next to each other, we're fine. Right. So it's kind of hard to navigate each and every interaction because the rules keep changing a little bit depending on who you're interacting with, which is That's so confusing. True. We want predictability as lawyers. <laughs> well, as even though we think the world is completely at a standstill, the legal profession has moved on during these times. We have... Um, a very interesting that the court case that we talked about on a previous episode, the Anka v. Chubb Supreme Court case discussing the governing law of the arbitration agreement that has gotten a nod from the UK Supreme Court that they will be that will be heard. Uh, so hopefully we'll get some certainty um, in that case. Um, the ICC conference, um, which would be the kickoff to the Paris Arbitration Week, of course, Paris Arbitration Week is not moving forward in its in its original form. Uh, but the ICC European Conference is moving online. It will be one day on the 7th of July at 2.30 p.m. And you can log in and there will be the 
keynote by Alexis Moore and Alexander Fessas, um, followed by the two panel discussions that we talked about on the podcast in previous episodes. So you can sign up for that and tune into that the day prior the ICC Institute of World Business Law will organize an interactive two-hour training on document production at 3 p.m. Places are limited for that one, so you can sign up via the ICC's webpage and figure out how to get involved and stay in touch during these times. Um, and the other conference that um, is happening is that Joel is speaking at a conference coming up. Uh, do I have to <laughs> self-promote self now? Well, just say the date and time. <laughs> it's oh i was hoping to avoid this but i guess we might as well <laughs> i uh, thank you brian <laughs> next tuesday on no two tuesdays oh what what date is it it doesn't matter yeah uh, june 23rd uh, is a tuesday next tuesday exactly I will be speaking on a panel, a webinar, of course, organized by the Young Public International Law Group in London and the Arnold and Porter law firm uh, on the topic of public international law in the UK post-Brexit. So a refreshing non-COVID related seminar uh, with a bunch of people who are twice as smart as me and all of whom have experience with both public international law and London that I don't not today <laughs> so we'll see i will be speaking about domestic courts though and and the 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 uk courts london court specifically and how their role in investment treaty arbitration might be affected by the the impending brexit doom well that's right up your alley then yes it is so that's uh June 23rd, I think it's 1 p.m. London time, 1 a.m. New York, 1, uh, 8 p.m. Hong Kong. Yes, and you can register wherever you end up when you Google public international law in the UK, Arnold and Porter. Well, even if you think that they are going to excel in their intellectual capacity, Joel, you have already excelled in your photographic capacity on the advertisement your center stage and have a very uh, glamorous shot. So I, I really appreciate it. You, know, you know where that shot is from? Uh, the investment moot? No, it's from um, when, when we debated the cost thing in DC. Ah, year. right. Since I haven't had a law firm employer uh, ever, basically. <laughs> I don't have a professional headshot. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then actually, I Joel, I haven't even told you this, but my... Um, University, uh, my law school, American University, Washington College of Law, has invited, asked me to speak with a, a, another individual who has a podcast on law uh, to talk about the medium. So uh, we'll just be doing a, a thing on that in July and the details will follow. It's, it's just in its infancy stages. But which reminds me, and I hadn't even written this down, but Washington College of Law has started or officially launched its online LLM program. So it's a full LLM program that you can take international arbitration that will be fully conducted online. So interesting. This, I am now deciding, will be a topic for the next season when we yes. know a little bit more about teaching and studying arbitration in an online world. Yes. So interesting. Well, let's, um, We do you want to give our sponsor plug? Yes, I think our listeners at this point are well aware that we are sponsored for this season, which ends as of this episode by Investment Arbitration Reporter, uh, the online service focused on international investment law. And I, with apologies to Luke, don't have to read all of our uh, sponsoring copy this time because I know that our listeners like this. But I will say yes. this, and it was tweeted by a reporter. Uh, and I retweeted and shared it on our uh, Twitter handle for the podcast, too, that a lot of people actually do have access to iReported without knowing it because libraries at organizations and universities aren't always good at when it comes to promoting the fact that they do have an institution-wide subscription. There are more than 100 such institutions and a lot of people have reached out to iReporter over the years and said, oh, I want access to iReporter only uh, for iReporter to find out that they already have access. They just don't know about it. So if you are a student or if you work for an organization or work for a university, you probably already have access to iReporter. So make sure to bother your librarian or knowledge management resource person so that you can get access to this excellent service. Amazing. That's a good one. Um, and then while we have a 
compact, full yet compact program for you today. Uh, Joel, you will start off with the first topics, which is the enforcement of set-aside decisions. Is that correct? Yes, set-aside awards. Set-aside awards. Um, And then the second topic I will take, which is the Treaty to End All Treaties, which is the uh, Treaty to End Intra-EU BITs signed by 23 EU member states. So we'll talk about that and its impact. Um, And then finally, we will have a happy fun time topic, uh, which is slightly substantive, but we'll make it uh, lighthearted, which is discussing the influence of domestic legal traditions or legal cultures in international arbitration, pros and cons on whether we think it should do more or do less. AKA, what is wrong with the United States? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in less jargon uh yeah us go away you're bugging me uh, okay this final episode is now alive and kicking back to the old concept just a, a boys club uh, let's see if we can wrap this up can you enforce an arbitral award after it has been set aside at the seat and as always the answer to this question is it depends as we will see in this case it depends largely on whether you are in france or not but it also (laughs) depends on a few other things which we'll get back to if happy fun time will be some light united states bashing this might be a light france bashing but we will see (laughs) where we end up let's first get some basics set down any court can decline to enforce an award, but only the courts of the seat of the arbitration, the place of arbitration, have the power to set aside an award. Although, and this is the classic asterisk in this case, this has been disputed at times, most prominently in India, where for a while until uh, a judgment in 2012, Indian courts would consider set-aside proceedings where the governing law of the arbitration was Indian, even if the seat was not in India. This was not popular in the world of arbitration and has now been reversed, but it's important to note and has been part of arbitration teachings for a long time. So an award that has been set aside will typically preclude the enforcement of that award in the jurisdiction in which it was set aside. So that award no longer exists at the place of arbitration. But what about enforcement beyond the seat of arbitration, which is, of course, often the case in international commercial arbitration. You are looking for assets to enforce against outside of the jurisdiction where the arbitration took place. And under the New York Convention, Article 5.1e, recognition and enforcement of the award may be refused where the award has not yet become binding or has been set aside or suspended by a competent authority of the country in which or under the law of which the award was made. In other words, I emphasize may here, uh, and our regular listeners will already know this, the New York Convention is permissive. While an award may not be enforced if it's been set aside at the seat, there is no requirement that the award not be enforced. And this is further emphasized by Article 7 of the New York Convention, which provides that the Convention shall not deprive any interested party of any right he may have to avail himself of an arbitral award in the manner and to the extent allowed by the law or treaties of the country where such award is sought to be relied upon. This is the famous Article 7, which leaves the door open to recognition and enforcement under a national law, even if it's been annulled of the award at the seat. Basically, this is a fancy way of expressing the arbitration-friendly thing that we talked about many ah. episodes ago. You, the, the New York Convention only sets a floor and provides a minimum level, but if the enforcing court wants to be more liberal and uh, allow for recognition and enforcement anyway, uh, they are absolutely allowed to do so under the New York Convention. Whether or not you can enforce a set-aside award therefore depends on where you seek enforcement and here jurisdictions have taken very different approaches to this issue Uh, if we begin with what we can maybe call a common law approach with all the customary reservations about making such careless distinctions uh, in most common law jurisdictions the tribunal's power to decide on the matters in dispute is derivative of the seat's authority 
and commentators have suggested that from this perspective, if an award has been set aside at the seat, it is entirely extinguished and the enforcement is therefore no longer possible in any jurisdiction. This is sometimes expressed in the maxim ex nihilo nihil fit. Nothing oh. comes from nothing. Yeah, we need some Latin every now and then. <laughs> Screws up this podcast. Emmanuel Gaillard, who, no, Gaillard, 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 <laughs> has suggested that this consequence could be seen as an extension of the long dominant view that the law of the seat is what gives an arbitration its legal force. Now I'm quoting Emmanuel G. The courts at the seat of arbitration oversee the proper functioning of the procedural aspects of the arbitration and at the end of the process confirm or set aside the award. In other words, under this approach, the seat anchors the arbitration to the legal order of the state in which it takes place. This is orthodoxy, in my opinion, and mm-hmm. the way I have usually talked about the place of arbitration or the seat of arbitration on this podcast. It gives the arbitration a domestic anchor. Albert Jan van den Berg, on the other hand, uh, or not on the other hand, because he is basically echoing Gallardia. When an award has been annulled in the country of origin, it has become non-existent in that country. The fact that the award has been annulled implies that the award was legally rooted in the arbitration law of the country of origin. How then is it possible that courts in another country can consider the same award as still valid? Perhaps some theories of legal philosophy may provide an answer to this question, but for a legal practitioner, the phenomenon is inexplicable. On this view, it follows that where the seat itself has set aside the award, no enforcement is possible, he wrote in 1998. And this has this general orthodoxy has been expressed also in many common law jurisdictions by courts. For example, in Singapore uh, in 2013, the PT First Media case, the Singapore Court of Appeal said that while the New York Convention may contemplate the enforcement of a set-aside award, quote, the contemplated erga omnes effect of a successful application to set aside an award will generally lead to the conclusion that there is simply no more award to enforce. Mm-hmm. And here I want to mention English courts because you are in London and we are talking about common law. English courts appear to be moving away from the view that annulment at the seat results in automatic unenforceability but with a similar but different reasoning. If an award annulled at the seat is not to be enforced, the primary reason it appears to English courts is comedy and recognition of the annulment decision by the other court, not the automatic extinction of the underlying award. So this is a slightly different path to the same result. It is not because there is no award, it is because we recognize the court which set the award aside. This has been expressed uh, in a case often referred to as Maximov, has a much longer name, obviously, in the English High Court, where the High Court considered the enforceability of an award which was seated in Russia and annulled by Russian courts. And the High Court held that the award was non-enforceable in light of the annulment by the Russian courts. The court also suggested that the annulment was itself insufficient reason to decline recognition and enforcement. And the judge here said, among other things, my own view would be that an English court should not simply accept that a foreign court had set aside an arbitration award, particularly one within its own jurisdiction if there were at least an arguable case that the award had been set aside in breach of natural justice, whatever that means. Right. So it's not necessarily that they recognize the court per se as an institution, but it's that they recognize the reasons of the set aside. Exactly. And opening a window, basically, that if the set aside is in some way in violation of basic decent rule of law or natural justice principle, it is still possible not to recognize it, which is important. And this is uh, often talked about in the context of another case, Yukos versus Rosneft, uh, which is from 2014, where the High Court declined to adopt this ex nihil nil fit principle, 
saying that it would be unsatisfactory and contrary to the principle to principle if the court were bound to recognize the decision of a foreign court which offended basic principles of honesty, natural justice, and domestic concepts of public policy. Mm-hmm. This we get back to this case a little bit later. But the point here is that in certain circumstances, even English courts may refuse recognition and enforcement. Sorry, may allow recognition and enforcement even if the award has been set aside at the seat. There are uh, a few uh, bright line no enforcement jurisdiction, which includes Sweden. Uh, And when we teach this in Uppsala, talk about this particular question, we often say a bit carelessly that in Sweden, the word may in the New York Convention, Article 5, is in, in principle or in practice the same as the word shall when it comes to Sweden. We do not enforce awards that have been set aside. And similar principles apply in Russia and Romania and Colombia and some other countries too. However, most jurisdictions have not really addressed this question because it's, it is, after all, not that common that someone comes and tries to have a set-aside award enforced. So we don't really know what the situation would be in the vast majority of jurisdictions. Um, however, let's turn to the Netherlands because the Netherlands have followed the English courts in two cases arising from the same arbitral award, both Yukos versus Rosneft and in Maximum, Maximov, sorry, uh, the Dutch courts and Yukos, the Court of Appeal in Amsterdam, and then Maximov, the Supreme Court in the Netherlands, uh, both allowed for enforcement or recognition of the award, notwithstanding the set aside by Russian courts. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go into the details here, but it seems that uh, in the view of both Dutch and English courts, these awards should maybe not have been set aside at the place of arbitration in right. Russia. Um, now, the main event, the French approach. <laughs> La proche française. Oh, nice. isn't here. Yeah, correct. <laughs> <laughs> they do things differently in France, of course, as suggested earlier, and as we've discussed on other episodes. France and some other civil law jurisdictions operates with different perspective on the relationship between international arbitration and domestic forums. And in the words of Emmanuel Gaillard, in these jurisdictions, France most prominently, arbitrators do not derive their powers from the state in which they have their seat, but rather from the sum of all the legal orders that recognize under certain conditions the validity of the arbitration agreement and the award. This is why it is often said that arbitrators have no forum. And this, just an editorial note here, it is often said in France that arbitrators have no forum. (laughs) And there are a number of significant practical consequences flowing from this theoretical French stance. For example, arbitrators are not bound to apply the procedural rules of the seat. They do not need to follow the choice of law rules of the seat. Mm -hmm. They have broader discretion when determining the substantive rules applicable to the dispute. And as we discussed last week, not last week, last episode, because that was almost a month ago. <laughs> if the scope if the scope or validity of the arbitration agreement is at issue, the disagreement will not be resolved by means of a national law determined by a classic choice of law mechanism. So the arbitrators derive their powers from some sort of accumulated international law and not the law of the seat. That is the the theoretical starting point in French arbitration law. And with that starting point, of course, there is no justification for uh, respecting the annulment of the set-aside at the seat of the arbitration. And the seminal case here is the Hill-Martin case from 1995, which is in every arbitration textbook, mm-hmm. where the Cour de Cassation found that an award that was annulled in Switzerland could still be enforced because it was, and I'm quoting from this famous case, it was an international award which was not integrated into the Swiss legal order such that its existence continued in spite of it being set aside and that its recognition in France was not contrary to international public policy. So the French court said, this is not a Swiss award, this is an international award. The Swiss courts do not have exclusive jurisdiction to decide whether or not the award stands. They can decide for Switzerland, but we decide for France because this is an international arbitration award. 
And this has been uh, confirmed basically in the later case, the Putrabali case from 2007, uh, where an award was annulled in England and still enforced in France because the court said the validity of the award must be examined in accordance to the applicable rules of the country where the recognition and enforcement are sought. Right. So, so France, France or the French courts do not defer to the annulment decision of the courts at the seat. They actually, on the contrary, appear to disregard the decision of the seat instead making their own determination about the enforceability of the award. So uh, you can still enforce an award in France, which is lucky for you if your respondent or the person or the entity that lost the arbitration has assets in France. It doesn't matter if the award is set aside in France, you might be lucky anyway. Right. Yes. So to sum up here, somewhat surprisingly, especially if you are theoretically interested, annulment at the seat is rarely an absolute bar to enforcement. Only in a few jurisdictions is it automatically a bar. Annulment may preclude enforcement in some jurisdictions. And in many jurisdictions, enforcement may still be sought, especially if there's been something fishy with the set-aside proceeding. I think I don't need to ask you where you fall in this discussion. Uh, Logically. No, this, I think I have maybe changed a little bit, but I am Swedish and I am a firm believer of the domestic anchor of the mm-hmm. seat. However, um, maybe a bit unsurprising... I think the more pragmatic English court approach now and the Dutch court, like in certain circumstances, and I don't have to enumerate them, but if it is obvious that the award has been set aside because of some shady business, right. my ideological stance that we should respect that court and that there is no award eh, might be a bit flexible. Yeah, I think that's that's an obvious line to draw. I tend to be in the same like vein as you. I mean, you could even think of something a bit more touchy, saying it was set aside in the seat because of some public policy reason that is very specific to that jurisdiction. That yes. would that that would maybe not warrant you know an enforcement jurisdiction to say okay, we can't respect this award, even though everything else about the award was okay. Just something specific about that jurisdiction says it's against their public policy. Um, there, there is something here about predictability as well that I think is, is important to keep in mind if you're a party, especially to the proceedings and something we all as arbitration lawyers should strive for is predictability. If you do and actually succeed in set aside the award at the place of arbitration, I think you are entitled to assume that that means that the arbitration is over mm-hmm. and not that it can be relitigated in numerous jurisdictions in an attempt to have the award enforced anyway. I think you, the whole point is that arbitration should be a one-stop shop. Right. And ideally, you've chosen a place of arbitration as parties that you trust, and you should be able to rely on what that court's final word is with respect to the validity of the award. You right. should not be able to be you know, forced into numerous enforcement battles, even if the award has been set aside. I've, I think that is a very important consideration to keep in mind. That's true. Uh, but this is, of course, in the, in the best possible scenario in the ideal universe where the set aside is completely legitimate uh, and that is not always the case yeah on on the other hand and i'm just thinking spontaneously so feel free to like tell me i'm wrong but i could alleviate some concerns of like due process paranoia from these arbitrators that are going to issue an award it gets set aside in the jurisdiction in which it you know the seat and then there's no award and everything was for naught um so it could yeah. say, well, uh, now the award still lives on technically in some jurisdictions. Hopefully your assets are there. But um, I don't know. Maybe like there's a potential alleviation of that concern. Well, choose, choose your place of arbitration carefully. That's it, that's isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> see, see, Make sure to have your arbitration in a place where you trust the courts. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, uh, okay, great. Let's uh, move on to the next topic. All right, moving on to the next segment, the treaty to end all treaties, 
specifically actually only inter-EU BIT. <laughs> <laughs> but it sounded much dramatic. Yeah, to end all treaties, asterisk, maybe 5% of all treaties. <laughs> <laughs> um, so on the 5th of May, just over a month ago, 23 of the EU member states signed the, quote, agreement for the termination of bilateral investment treaties between member states of the European Union. This treaty effectively implements the ECT's decision in ACMEA, uh, from March 2018 that held that intra-EU BITs were incompatible with EU law. So 23 member states signed it, which means that four of them were left off. The four that did not sign this treaty are Austria, Finland, Ireland, and Sweden, always the rebel, <laughs> uh, <laughs> did not sign the treaty. The UK also, which officially exited the EU, or yeah, officially like left, but it's still in transition, they also did not sign. Um, so those, so that didn't count in the 27 member states, of course, uh, at the time of signing. Oh, I have to relearn this now. I know that's the, maybe the least uh, problematic aspect of Brexit, but I automatically say 28 EU member states all the time. There are oh, yeah. 27, 27, 27. Yeah, I mean, during transition, I guess we could say that there's 28. So, but, I mean, maybe, maybe not for, for sake of good order. And 27 and a half. 27 and a fleeting thought. Um, actually, I just saw that they missed their uh, opportunity to delay Brexit. So we're moving forward as planned. We, I keep saying them, not we, they are. Um, the effect of this agreement is that they terminate more than 130 BITs with immediate effect. Um, the ECT, however, was not affected. Um, the agreement abrogates also, importantly, the sunset clauses, because that's the first thing you think of when you think of a termination of a BIT, is that there's yes. this extremely long sunset clause that will now kick in. Yeah, or do they? I think we should just, they claim, the agreement claims to abrogate the sunset clauses. Right. But views may differ. Views that, do differ. That is very true, actually. Um, and that, you're right, this agreement is an agreement, now we have to see if it's actually a valid agreement <laughs> to, what it, to what it actually does. But the, the main takeaways, if you decide to fast forward to the Happy Fun Time topic after this, is that the agreement abrogates or allegedly abrogates the sunset clauses um, and that it requires BIT to take certain measures for pending arbitrations. So the immediate consequence of all this is that investors will no longer have recourse to the substantive protections ordered by the BIT. And instead, they'll be afforded protections that are available under the EU, EU law and municipal law. So to go to the first point, which is the sunset clauses, as uh, most of us know, the sunset clause is that provision that says in the point of termination, uh, the existence of the treaty will continue on for a limited period of time that is specified in the BIT. So to give you an example, the Germany-Poland BIT specifies that a treaty may be terminated, terminated with a 12 months notice, but in respect of investments paid prior to the date of termination of the treaty, the articles of the treaty, including its dispute resolution procedures, shall continue to apply for a period of 20 years from the date of termination of the treaty. Um, and in the this uh, termination treaty, uh, Article 3 specifies that sunset clauses of bilateral intra-EU BITs are terminated by this agreement and shall not produce legal effects in accordance with the terms set out in this agreement. So it purports to cut short the sunset period of already terminated BITs as well. So if we take the example of the Germany-Poland BIT, as I just mentioned, it was terminated in October 2019. So while the sunset period would run through to October 2039, the agreement says that that no longer applies. And so this uh, treaty will, quote, sunset 19 years earlier than expected. Um, so as Joel points out, it remains very unclear whether tribunals should accept the sunset provisions of this agreement or the abrogation of the sunset provisions of the agreement. Um, our, as we know, tribunals have almost uniformly rejected the intra-EU BIT arguments uh, as a result of the Akamea decision. So are we to, led to believe that they will do the same for this agreement? Or will this be more of a concerted effort by the member states that the tribunals will respect? 
So where um, something that our researcher Callum absolutely point out was that it will be a thorny issue as to whether the rights under the BIT crystallized in the investor at the time of the investment, including the application of the sunset clause or whatever those rights were held merely by the state parties to the BIT and thus voidable on the party's agreement. So it will be something to watch um, how tribunals will deal with this. And I think, um, as I said, Callan really hit the nail on the head here. Because if you take kind of the Jan Paulson idea that like the arbitration agreement becomes perfected at the time that the, um, uh, well, either the investment is made or an arbitration is um, uh, initiated, then you would basically say that the parties agreed at that time so you would look at to what was agreed um at that time yeah and we also have this whole i think i've written about this uh, five years ago about the whole doctrine of third-party beneficiaries under international law that is not mm -hmm. just the two states the party to the treaty here that have rights under the treaty but also investors that are um, um have the nationality of either of the two states so it might not right. be for the two states to to just completely do whatever they want with the treaty because there might be third parties affected by that which might affect the way they can dispose of the treaty ah so do you think that they uh that the that the treaty that the agreement would be void in that case or you were saying that there's just exceptions to no there's just exceptions to i don't think it would void the whole thing i i honestly don't know and i don't remember where and what i wrote about this but i know that there is such a thing <laughs> <laughs> okay maybe we'll add a link um but the agreement, as a, so the second uh, main point of this agreement is pending disputes. So there's several complicated revisions in the agreement relating to arbitrations that have already been instituted under intra-EU BITs. So to quote um, some articles, we have Article 7 that says that member states must inform in cooperation with each other and on the basis of this statement annexed to the agreement, arbitral tribunals uh, about should inform arbitral tribunals about the legal consequences of the ECMEA judgment and in judicial proceedings related to the arbitral award, they should ask the competent national court, including any third country, as the case may be, to set out to set the arbitral award aside, annul it, or to refrain from recognizing it and enforcing it. Interesting caveat to our first topic. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, under Article 9, investors may ask member states involved in a pending arbitration um, independent arbitration that they must enter into a structured dialogue to reach a settlement. The settlement shall be overseen by an impartial facilitator with a view of finding between the parties an amicable, lawful, and fair out-of-court and out-of-arbitration settlement of the dispute, which is the subject of the arbitration proceedings. So basically, forced settlement. Yeah, um, th this is something that I, I know from speaking to other arbitration people, that this is maybe the... The most annoying thing to to arbitration orthodoxy and and I yeah. don't think the prevailing view is that this structured dialogue will be used a whole lot. <laughs> I just can't imagine how that would work. <laughs> um, then, so why did these states not sign it? Um, you have just very state-specific reasons why they don't have it, and a lot of them are based on conjecture. Like Finland, it's pretty unclear. Um, Sweden, there could be speculation that it's because Stockholm is an arbitration center, and therefore. Uh, 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 <clears throat> okay, I have to. I'm. I don't feel very strongly about the Swedish coronavirus response. I don't feel like I have to defend it because <laughs> I frankly don't care. Here, I do care, and I feel like I have an obligation as a citizen of the kingdom to uh, to explain a little bit without saying too much because I don't know what's in the public domain. It is absolutely not the case that Sweden is trying to. Uh, guard Stockholm as, an, as a seat of arbitration in intra-EU disputes. That That is simply not how Sweden works. And Sweden, for the record, is completely on board with ACMEA and what ACMEA means and the sort of prevailing EU law orthodoxy that it means that these treaties should no longer exist. Sweden's problem is with the, this treaty itself. Sweden has agreed and, in fact, also initiated bilateral termination processes with each and every EU member. Maybe, maybe not every, but there are many termination proceedings between Sweden and the another EU member state on a bilateral level. Sweden has mm -hmm. issues with the sort of international law aspects of this plurilateral treaty. That is mm. very important, I think, to keep in mind. For example, the sunset clauses that we just talked about. And Sweden does not feel like that these terminations should be conducted by way of one plurilateral treaty, which raises a lot of uncertainty in international law issues. And it's better to just do it bilaterally in accordance with the terms of the BITs themselves instead. That's an important 
important caveat that I think I've already had to explain to a bunch of people who assume this is some sort of sneaky keep Stockholm in play strategy, <laughs> which is not the case. <laughs> okay, well, that makes sense. And I don't think that's you as a citizen. I just think that's you as an informed person of the gentry. Yeah, and a patriot. <laughs> right. Okay, fine. Um, but do you contest the fact that the European Commission announced that it sent a formal notice to Finland and the United Kingdom for failing to effectively remove intra-EU BITs from no, the this, I think, was reported in iReporter, so I, I trust that, but I I don't know anything, so this is just pure conjecture on my point, on my end, but I, I, I suspect that the fact that Sweden did not get that notice is because Sweden has initiated bilateral termination proceedings. I don't know if mm. that is the reason, because it is a bit glaring that only, is it two? Is it only the two that got the commission? Yes. Finland and the UK? Yeah, that's, ah, who knows what's going on in the European Commission? It's kind of strange that Finland was singled out, and it's even stranger that the UK, it just feels like a waste of time, because they will no longer <laughs> yeah. even be an EU country when the, those proceedings are seriously kicking off. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, that is absolutely, as far as I know, true. Okay. Uh, it, it is interesting that the whole like competence of the EU Commission in, or the European Commission in, in sending these sort of formal notices, if this is supposed to be an agreement between the member states, they can really agree to what they want, I, I, let alone get forced from their like pseudo, um, you know, overarching governance to be able to take, they, they basically don't have any, have any sovereign capacity to be able to enter into this agreement since it would be the EC coming down on them and forcing them to do so. So it is, um, it seems like a bit of a stretch and I think that's everyone's like initial impression, but um, I guess it remains to be seen what, if any reaction is given from back from Finland and, and the UK. Yeah. And I guess Sweden and Austria are just happy that they were not uh, part <laughs> of this commission, commission, commission announcement, but I, um, I can I can replace this the the gossip about why Sweden didn't sign with some gossip about why Austria didn't sign if you'd like. Yes, please. <laughs> this is the point of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because this I I I actually uh, participated in an OGMIT thread about this, which we can talk about as long as we don't disclose who said what. Mm -hmm. And uh, one lawyer who seemed to know what they were talking about said that uh, wrote an email rather uh, saying that Austria switched its position very late. They were on board on this plurilateral thing for a long time. And then there are a number of intra-EU pending cases with Austrian investors. And this lawyer speculated based on sources that the Austrian investors basically convinced their government not to sign this treaty because they had an interest in the pending cases. Wow. And I've heard this from other people as well, but this person seemed to be knowing what they were talking about. Uh, That's probably so that, the, the banking cases then. Yes. I, I assume so. So there are many of those, of course, against yeah. Croatia primarily. Interesting. I mean, that that's the tail wagging the dog, isn't it? Yeah, it's the rare, <laughs> the rare case of successful investor lobbying to get members right. to do something on the international level on their behalf. Right. If that if that is true, we don't know. But it's it's an interesting speculation, which instinctively makes sense, which makes it for makes for good gossip. Yes, absolutely. Um, and just to wrap up this short segment, uh, what does it mean for the future of all of this? Well, of course, we'll look at whether this agreement is even applied or upheld by arbitral tribunals faced with such objections. But also, we have the wonderful caveat, as always, is the caveat is the ECT, um, which is, of course, is not. Um, included in this plurilateral treaty, but you have um, the EU plans to reform the ECT and have have drafted a modernization proposal that would include references to, instead to international arbitration to an in a multilateral investment court, um, and it's kind of unclear how that is going to look and take shape, um, and whether this could even apply to the ECT in, in general. Yeah. So. I think it, it seems from the outside that the EU Commission has sort of shifted gears when it comes to the ECT, because initially they argued in every possible context that the ECT and the intra-EU bits were the same. So the ECT in intra-EU context would also be terminated as a consequence of EMEA. Yeah. Now that they are investing so much in reforming the ECT, it kind of looks like they are instead saying, okay, let's keep the ECT, but let's make it better, rather than trying to get it under the umbrella of the acmea related terminations. So maybe they, they are losing that argument. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Your words. <laughs> <laughs> 
But uh, so you think that they're backing off because they might be making traction in the modernization proposal? Yeah, that's just, again, speculation. But they seem very invested in that. And uh, maybe a month ago, uh, the EU proposal to, to reform the ACT was was uh, leaked or at least made public. Some, I think, Politico mm. uh, published it first. And it, it was an ambitious and I, I think pretty well thought through uh, change just article by article, nothing just revolutionary, no new ECT from scratch, but rather a step-by-step modernization and update of the current treaty. And and if they can get other ECT states on board, maybe the process will be relatively quick and we will have a much better ECT uh, in a reasonable, reasonably foreseeable future. And if, if so, I guess maybe they will have less of an issue with uh, the ECT intra-EU thing. But I don't know. I That might be uh, some basic EU law point that I'm overlooking here. Interesting. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that space and we will move on to Happy Fun Time. Yes. So we've picked on France and slightly the UK and the Netherlands, and now we're going to pick on the United States. <laughs> As the lens through which we are going to discuss this topic, which is the influence of domestic traditions and cultures in international arbitration. Um, And this struck me um, for a couple of new cases that come up specifically out of the Supreme Court in the United States that dealt with a lot of domestic cultural um, aspects of the legal traditions in the United States bleeding into international arbitration procedures. The first one, which I think um, many people have heard about, was a decision by the circuit court that said that a party could seek to have U.S.-type discovery in aid of international commercial arbitration. So Mm. what that means is that you could apply to a U.S. court to initiate this U.S. discovery-style proceedings for if it, that court had jurisdiction over either the entity or a subsidiary or the asset over which you wanted um, discovery. So that kind of, and this is Section 1782 um, in the United States Code, that basically uh, allows for the assistance to foreign and international tribunals and to litigants before such tribunals. And then the question before the court was whether this international tribunals included arbitral tribunals and uh, the court said that it did. So what does this mean is that you're going to get U.S.-style discovery that you did not necessarily contract for. Um, this but- happens all the time in practice. Uh, I read a lot all of the time about cases like this where, for example, an arbitral tribunal has rejected within the scope of document production in the arbitration a request or two. And then there's some connection to the U.S., like a um, party with the documents might be in the U.S., even if there's no connection to the U.S. in the dispute, one party can still go to the U.S. courts in aid of the arbitration and request mm-hmm. that very same document from U.S. courts instead. Yeah, which, I mean, and this is what we're really going to be talking about, is whether we think that's fair, just, reasonable, and natural for that that type of thing to happen. Um, another case that it came up uh was quite recently where the Supreme Court decided on the um, the New York Convention and whether it prevents non-signatories from enforcing arbitration agreements under the domestic law principle, specifically in the common law jurisdictions of equitable estoppel. Um, and that really had to do with a subcontractor that was not a signatory to the arbitration agreement between the general contractor and the third party. But they said that, um, that the agreement was not in writing because the subcontractor had not agreed to it. But the court said that they had not actually uh, been exempted from or prevented from enforcing the arbitration agreement. And the principle that was used in that uh, in by Justice Clarence Thomas was the doctrine of equitable estoppel, which anyone from a civil law jurisdiction will be like, what, what is that? Um, and I actually had a case uh, when I was in Sweden, the, the applicable law was Swedish law, and there was an objection to jurisdiction based off the principles of judicial and equitable estoppel, two separate objections, which ended up being the reason the case did not move forward, um, much, even though I was the American in the room, much to my uh, dismay, uh, because how could you, as a party, agreeing to Swedish law as the applicable law, um, and even having it seated in Sweden, how could that type of principle, um, equitable principle, come into play? 
Mm. Um, oh, okay. There are so many broader points here, but maybe I should shut up for a while and let you give a few more examples before we venture venture into comparative. Yeah. No, and you know, to take the U.S. off the hot seat, some other instances where this could really bleed in is um, expectations of confidentiality, which could be more of a domestic um, perspective on what should be confidential, what should be not confidential. Also, the issue of privilege. Um, you have the um, certain privileges that come into play that are very domestic law focused, and you and because there aren't necessarily privileges that are enumerated in, the, in an arbitration act or um, in the procedural rules of a uh, institution, then which privileges would you apply and um, what would be the enunciation of those privileges because they can take uh, different forms, for example, who is the privilege enforcer, who can invoke the privilege and who would it protect. Um, you also have something as practical as advocacy styles, um, whether certain um, witness examination should be done via written witness statement or should it be done by direct examination. Um, and as I said, evidence, um, what type of exclusionary principles can you use? What type, for example, can someone invoke the very U.S. common law style parole evidence rule which says you can't use any prior negotiations to use to interpret a written contract, um, whether in arbitration someone could try to exclude such evidence as immaterial on the basis of these rules even though it would not necessarily apply given the um, governing law or the um, law governing the procedure. Um, and also the arbitral tribunal, um, you take it on the other side of the table, what, pr what legal traditions and legal cultures are they bringing to the table? Um, what even something as like mundane as their inquisitorial style coming from their legal traditions, but also their idea on your Nova Curia or um, something a bit more that has more of an impact on the arbitration. So this is where just to set the stage for this discussion, the where I see some domestic legal traditions and cultures, which are two different things, um, leading into international arbitration. And the question to you, Joel, to kick off, but I expect you'll not answer the question directly and give me some <laughs> an answer, is whether you like the influence that you see, and that's what makes international arbitration international, and we should embrace it, or whether you think we need to preserve this internationality or supranationality of, of arbitration. Oh, good question. <laughs> uh, let me just also, uh, we can go back, get back to, I think the arbitrator's point is interesting. I want to ask you if you think domestic judges should sit as arbitrators um, in international arbitration. Let, let's, let's put a pin in that because I don't want to forget about that. I don't want to take notes either. To the overarching point, I think that's a great question and one that also touches a little bit on the uh, Is International Law International book by Anthea Roberts that we talked about a billion years ago on this podcast, right. arguing that international law is not as international as we tend to think. And I think the same basic reasoning applies to international arbitration as well. And I try to hammer this into my students whenever given the opportunity. We should not overestimate the influence of, uh, of of international, supranational, transnational norms in international arbitration because, among other things, because of the legal seat thing that we talked about at the, fir at the, first, the first segment of this episode, there's always domestic law involved somehow. Mm -hmm. And it, what we refer to as international arbitration law is just um, a melting pot or a salad bowl or whatever you want to use uh, <laughs> by way of <laughs> metaphor of domestic laws that are there. And uh, that is a crucial thing to keep in mind. And when we talk about this and talk about the various doctrines, for example, that you gave uh, as an example, now things that exist in a very specific context, the equitable estoppel doctrine, for example, mm -hmm. to take a concrete example in common law, even if it doesn't exist in Swedish law, for example, mm -hmm. we have nothing called equitable estoppel in Swedish law. In comparative law and in comparative law scholarship, you talk about functionality and about problems, essentially. Like, even if we don't have the same name or the exact same doctrine, we tend to have something with a similar function because mm -hmm. the same problems arise in our system. So most jurisdictions have solved things in similar ways, or at least they've had to face the same problem. And regardless of what you call it and exactly what it looks like, there is generally something that is similar and we have something else, like equitable estoppel is, as if I understand it correctly, basically, if you have not acted equitably or fairly 
as a party. You cannot, if you make false representations, you cannot rely on that uh, at, a, at a later stage. It might come back and bite you in the ass if you've done something inequitable. Of course, we have other principles that are similar to that in Swedish law, and I think most jurisdictions do. The trick for the arbitration lawyer is to figure out exactly how do these principles relate to each other and how are they different in different mm -hmm. domestic legal systems. Because we don't have, with the exception of the CISC, of course, a substantive international arbitration law. So you always have to deal with your applicable law. And that may be different from your own applicable law, the one that you're trained in. So you need to figure out how would a Swedish lawyer solve this problem that we would solve this way in American law. And right. there's something similar out there typically. And the, the skill, the core skill for the arbitration lawyer working internationally is to try to translate all of these like general universal maxims principles into concrete domestic applicable law terms, basically. Right. I think that is what makes arbitration so interesting. And it's basically the procedure that is internationalized more than the substance, I think. That's that's a really good point. Uh, yeah, I agree. The The procedure does become internationalized. And I think the question then becomes, should, do we think it should become internationalized or should we have something like summary judgments that are coming into play in the investment arbitration context, which is a completely like U.S. common law procedural tool? Uh, are we going to embrace this or and make it an international or or is it just the influence of the U.S. domestic approach coming into international law? And I, but I think you're right. I mean, if you look at the the ICSA convention, the applicable law is technically there is the law, the substantive law, which is the law of the host state that's being applied to the investor. But you do have the international laws like the supplemental or the the underlying law to to govern the the international obligations of the parties but the the essence of the obligation does to an extent come from you know, did they pass the law you know due process for for example that is the international principle but you're dealing with the laws of the host state and that are governing the court proceedings um right so it does I, think, I think in investment arbitration i think here is uh, an example of where it's useful to draw a distinction between commercial and investment arbitration mm -hmm. because in investment arbitration of course it is public international law it is supposed to be international and then we can debate back and forth to what extent it is in fact international but i think international commercial arbitration and uh, so the private aspect of international arbitration right. as opposed to the public aspect being investment arbitration right i, I right. think i think i think it's a slightly different discussion because they're you are always, by definition, uh, dealing with domestic law to a much larger extent than you are in investment treaty arbitration, where, as you point out, it obviously comes into play every now and then. But at least on paper, you are in a public international law sphere with international law principles, both for substance and for procedure, at least if it's an exception. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, the, 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 host law, the host state law will become an issue of fact in that, in that case, so it wouldn't really have a bearing on it. I just think that... I think for to use the example of equitable estoppel, for example, in that Supreme Court case uh, that I just mentioned, I think what you're saying is exactly right, that there is a functional equivalent and that to, to be a successful advocate, you should not pigeonhole yourself into the concept itself or the, right, the name, right. the nomenclature itself, and then use it in a comparative approach to say, like, you know, this this exists in this in this context like the common law context but also there's a, there's this functional equivalent here and that the underarching thing is that you should not be that you should hold yourself to the first representation you made and you can't switch that representation and that you should be stopped from switching that representation exactly and this uh, is where i think domestic domestic litigation lawyers who are sometimes venture into international arbitration often make a wrong turn because yes. two U.S. lawyers arguing this case under Swedish law would argue this in terms that are U.S. influenced, and they would call it equitable estoppel, whereas an international arbitration lawyer from the U.S. would reason the way you just did and maybe even retain a Swedish lawyer as mm -hmm. part of the team or as an expert and try to, like, phrase it in terms that are actually relevant in, in, uh, under the applicable law because uh, there is generally a functional equivalent, which may or may not look the same, but at least somewhat similar. Exactly. And I think it really expands your approach to dealing with issues. You know, if I'm a U.S. lawyer talking about pre-negotiation, 
uh, evidence to a contract interpretation question, you know, it's helpful to have a Swedish lawyer who doesn't even understand why that shouldn't be evidence. You throw in the kitchen sink in order to interpret the contract because it goes to the intent of the parties and whether there was a meeting of the minds, you know, is the general concept, which in U.S. law, there is that general concept of meeting of the minds. And if there isn't a meeting of the minds, then you go through the interpretation tools to realize like what what it would be. But to go to your question, and I think this is whether their domestic judges should are successful arbitrators, um, the broad term successful. I think I think what we're to kind of piggyback off this previous discussion we're having is that you get, especially if you get into an equitable stopple argument, you're gonna get a domestic court judge sitting in an international arbitration, perhaps applying the test for equitable estoppel to determine whether parties have stopped from making a representation or taking. So you have this three-pronged test that is used in you know, US jurisprudence. Is that arbitrator gonna systematically go through that three-pronged test to see if it's met? Or are they able to kind of suspend their domestic law tradition and say, okay, well, let's look at a holistic approach with like the underlying idea of what equitable estoppel actually is. Mm. Um, I think it, it, it depends on the judge, basically, is what you're saying. Yeah, of course. Like, and but, how the individual um, judge. Another anecdote was a someone who is, you know, an international arbitration practitioner through and through was sitting in an, a commercial arbitration with two other domestic court judges that were quite high up in that domestic court system. And the question was language of the arbitration. And I think I've raised this example before on this podcast, but the domestic court judges 100% said it's the the local language that should apply. And the international arbitration practitioner went through the more international law principle, like the principles of saying, okay, well, what what is the, uh, it's like a conflict of law analysis almost to choose the language of the arbitration. And, and the domestic court judges had no interest in that because it was the language that they understood and that's where they were sitting and that's where the venue was. Um, but that's not necessarily the language that should be chosen. No, generally English should be chosen, right? <laughs> if, if, if that is what the parties have been using, or what the evidence is in, exactly. and also the language that all the practitioners involved, including the tribunal, is fluent in. <laughs> yes. Well, that's well, that's what's making it happy, fun time. But to kind of end this note and this season and this finale and talking about language and different traditions and everything is this general idea of diversity and inclusion. Um, we here at the podcast are, you know, we want to just say that we promote diversity and inclusion. Uh, Ika has released a policy. I don't know if you know that, Joel, hopefully based off mm -hmm. our influence from the, from the previous Ika session, but um, that they, especially in this, during these protests and during the Black Lives Matter movements that has kind of researched during this pandemic, um, we just want to acknowledge it and say that, I mean, I personally, I'm not gonna speak for you, the podcast, but you know, we're allies of the movement and we hope that this moves forward in a positive way and that firms and institutions and practitioners and colleagues and coworkers and co-counsels um, actually implement concrete measures to address this and not just put up a black square on Instagram, but actually start implementing real concrete policies that can have um, some real change. Yes, I think we should also, this is, I'm now improvising so we can edit this out, but yes. uh, do you remember when we got a lot of interesting listener uh, experiences emailed or sent to us when we talked about uh, LGBTQ issues and arbitration. I think maybe we can promise that uh, when we're back, which we very much aim to be with the fifth season during the fall or sometime later this year, at the very beginning of that season, we should talk about the implications of Black Lives Matter and the the recent wave of uh, acknowledgement and awareness that is uh, just flowing over the world and what it means for arbitration. And it would be great if we could do so based off of experiences, particularly from people of, of color in international arbitration. Uh, we can formalize this, tweet it out and also spread it. But um, as we get closer to the season, but I think that would be a useful thing to do the three of us based on maybe with a guest or two. Uh, because this is obviously something similar to Me Too, similar to LGBTQ things in arbitration. Um, this discussion is very relevant in our international field. 
Yeah, I think you're right. This shouldn't be edited out. You're you're exactly right. I don't think our acknowledgement at the end of this finale season is is enough, and we'll definitely revisit it and revisit it in a more meaningful way with guests and people that can speak from experience, because that is is the best way to. We will never understand it, but it's the best way to at least communicate it and get the discussion moving. It could also be useful the, for us to shut up and let the only person of color on the podcast be present and actually <laughs> hold the microphone for this particular discussion. Yes, the two white men can shut their mouth. Um, well, speaking of shutting our mouths, Joel, we can shut it for the season. Yes, it's a wrap. We have been assisted during this season with ample editorial and research assistance from three people and they uh, i think pretty equally divided the season between themselves and did five episodes six episodes each and those three people without whom this podcast could not have been made are callum agnew and dimitri metnikov and rishab raheja aka rishi and in addition to our three researchers we have been edited by, I think at this point we can just call him a producer because he's much more than an editor. Yeah. He's basically the, the, the brain behind the whole operation, hiding behind the scenes because he doesn't like the attention as much as we do. Or maybe we don't <laughs> give him enough. <laughs> we want to thank Jan Kunster for all the great work he has been doing more or less since day one. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you to everyone. Thank you. We missed you on this episode. Thank you, I reporter, for your constant support for this endeavor. And thank you to all the listeners who keep emailing us. And again, I'm sorry, we, we, we keep getting research assistance applications. We are good for now. We don't need any more researchers, but we will let you know once we do. Thank you to everyone who engages on, on Twitter and in other fora. And hope to see you virtually or uh, in person on the arbitration circuit pretty soon, hopefully during the summer. Great. Mm -hmm.